cast it's the shoe cast where we ramble endlessly about quality footwear how it's made and all the things that we love about it Ticho, this time we are here to talk about hand sewns aka shoes or boots made with what's known as hand sewn moccasin construction i think it's just a really important topic to tackle because sometimes i feel like there's a lack of understanding about how hand sewns are made but really even more so just the industry in the US the absolute behemoth that it once was and then how it drifted into an honestly depressing period of decline before really being reborn in a very impressive new form over the last decade or two so we're going to talk about the history and the construction and all that today and then next week we'll get in much deeper on the brands that are leading the revival in Maine, and then also Russell Moccasin in Wisconsin, who's been at this thing nonstop since 1898, bless you, Russell Moccasin. Ticho, I can only hope you're wearing some hand sounds today. Of course I am, Ben. Planning this out, I've had hand sounds on my mind for a few days, and also it's super hot out, so it's the perfect time of year to, to be wearing hand sounds, uh, in my opinion. And so today, I'm. You might hear some some road noise or some city noise. I'm at the Taft store in Soho, 135 Prince Street. So if you hear some stuff that sounds like cars or just like random people walking by, dogs barking or like who knows what, that's why. Back open for business. Love it. Hey, we're back open. We're selling selling shoes again, which is cool. And most importantly, the the La Colombe coffee shop on Prince Street just opened up this week. So I was able to go over there, get a cold brew before we started recording. It's mid-morning right now before, haven't opened the store yet. I'm just kind of hanging out in here. And I am uh, wearing my pair of Quaddy Blukers, which I think is right. Still on the fence. Bluchers? I say Bluker. No, yeah, you're the you're the Bluker guy. You're the Bluker guy. Oh, man, now I'm more confused than ever before. Anyway, these things, Whiskey Cavalier from Horween. Got the baseball stitching. Uh, like pretty much everything from these main companies. Uh, an MTO pair from a few years ago. They are one of the most comfortable pairs of shoes that I own. You know, did a little walking this morning. We'll, you know, we'll stroll through the city to get here. Couldn't be more comfortable walking around in these things. Love them. I assume that you are also wearing hand sounds today. And I also understand you are in a, a new recording location because I heard a bunch of pigeons. So tell me about that. Actually, you didn't hear the pigeons because the pigeons are out for a flight right now. You heard the chickens. Yeah, I'm in a, a wonderful home where I grew up, where there were not pigeons or chickens when I did grow up. But my parents have become um, just absolute bird fetishists, I suppose. And it, it makes it all quite homely. But yeah, none of them can get into the recording studio, but they're they're going to try their damnedest to do so. So you might hear them too. Are they racing pigeons? Are they show? What are the pigeons doing? Are they for food? Like, What's the point of the pigeons? My dog, Frank, definitely thinks they're for food, but luckily he can't get to them. My father, since he was a, a lad, uh, raced pigeons, like raised and raced them. Yeah, he built them this like beautiful little coop, and and they're in there. They they laid some eggs recently. There's like some little baby pigeons. They're pretty fucking cool. And then he lets them out every morning, like you know, drives half an hour away, calls us, and then they fly back. And we're you know supposed to be timing them or something, but I don't know. I'm not quite that involved yet. But yeah, and the chickens are wonderful. Everybody should get chickens. You should get chickens. Yeah, my neighbor has chickens. They're pretty cool. They lay eggs. That's the food. We're not running like a poultry production farm here. They're here for their camaraderie and and their eggs. And they're incredible. Once you have like a fresh egg from a chicken, other eggs don't taste like anything anymore and you can't eat them. 
Oh, so it ruins eggs for you? It's pretty crazy. I don't know if I could have another thing ruined for me. Because I like eggs, just regular eggs. I mean, I love eggs, but once you have you know, like the real ones, the fresh ones, you, you kind of can't go back, which means you just have to keep chickens forever, which I think is fine. I guess that's what you're going to do. You're hooked on hooked on chickens. It's a weird, strange addiction to have. but Yeah, but it's real. It gets inside you, man. Wow. This is deep. Yeah, I'm not here for long, but I'm, I'm probably going to swipe a couple when I leave. You're talking about the full chickens. Full chickens. Mm-hmm. Shove them into a shoebox. I'm also uh, wearing shoes. Oh. Yeah. Felt like a, the kind of day where uh, you wear shoes on a shoe podcast. So I have my Sperry handcrafted in Maine Ranger Mocks in waxed concrete hard time leather from SB Foot Red Wings Tannery. These and all of Sperry's top end line are actually made by Rancourt in Lewiston, Maine, the historic epicenter of hand-sewn manufacturing and a place that we're going to talk about today plenty. Before we get rolling, I just wanted to give a shout out to our sponsor this week, Standard & Strange, the supremely excellent Oakland, California shop. Standard & Strange, they don't require you to have an engineering degree to buy their engineer boots, but it helps. All right, hand-sewns. What are these things? So you've got boat shoes, camp mocks, ranger mocks, which are my personal favorite. Whether they have thin camp soles, bouncy crepe rubber soles, huge lugged hiking soles, all of these things can be hand zones. Guide boots, um, there's some excellent hand sewn chuckas and penny loafers. They can all be made with the same construction. On the whole, they're very lightweight. They're flexible as all hell. And when they break in and really mold to your feet, they're kind of unlike anything else. But they're also generally pretty insanely comfortable right out of the box. Yeah, you can't really overstate how comfortable these things are. We kind of get used to putting on these these really rugged boots with these, you know, heavy leather insoles that we have to break in. And there's you're like, ah, oh, I got this break in. It's really tough. And then you pop on a hand sewn. It's so lightweight. It's so immediately so comfortable. It's like a totally different experience. But at the same time, it's a wonderful experience. And I absolutely love wearing hand sounds. I have a whole bunch of them, mostly like the camp mock boat shoe type of things. I like like a nice low profile uh, hand sewn. But I've been very curious about getting into like a hand sewn boot. I think those look pretty killer and I think would be cool for like for the fall. Pretty much everybody who makes hand zones makes a really cool boot. Russell, who we mentioned earlier, I mean, they make, you know, 12 inch high boots, but they're hand sewn moccasin in construction and double and triple vamp. And like, they're cool. I need some. And again, like you can, you, you normally think about them as these super lightweight, thin soled boat shoes, but you know, you can apply this construction and, and kind of slap on any sole you want, which is, I mean, it's pretty cool. And I think that we, we both need to commit to ourselves that, um, you know, we're going to plunge deeper into three to four season hand zones. I think that would be a healthy maneuver for shoemen such as ourselves. So the real defining feature of hand zones is that leather vamp and it's, it's, different and kind of flipped from the vamp that you might be familiar with from other constructions, Goodyear welt, stitch down, whatever, where the vamp of the shoe sits over the top of your feet. In hand zones, that leather vamp is, it wraps up and around your foot. It's all one piece that's cut with dyes. Then there's another piece of leather called a plug, which pops on top. Um, And then on certain different patterns, there's like other panels that are are stitched on as well. But the base of it is, is that vamp and the plug, which goes over, you know, the front of your foot. 
and then the two are sewn together by hand, believe it or not, with two huge needles to make the shoe. And the process, when you see it in person, in videos, it's really, really cool. It's this just amazingly meditative, artful process that creates these shoes. And it's very, very different to be in one of these factories than in a Goodyear Welt factory where there's these machines clattering and everything. Like it's very quiet. And it's just these people sitting or standing at these benches, working these needles through leather and really making something that in a lot of ways is kind of more artful than a lot of the other shoe constructions that you'll see out there, not to take anything away from them, but you know, there's, there's something that, you know, in the way that they can manipulate the leather, you know, like do it all by hand. It's like, it's really cool. And like, everybody should watch some videos, which you can't right now, because this is a podcast. You know, there's sometimes when you want to watch like a, a, a video to like, you know, kind of calm you down at night, or you want to, you know, just kind of like relax. That's like a good time to watch videos of, of people making hand zones. I've done that before, just as like, let's just watch a, you know, a rugged guy in a Red Sox hat, like take some needles and stitch some leather. It seems like a really peaceful and and meditative thing where you kind of get into a rhythm of, of sewing these things in a, they just have this really interesting rhythm to it, the way they do it. Watching them do it is mesmerizing. I think I need like a little bit more meditation and a little bit more peace in my life. I think that learning hand sewing might be like a cool thing to do. I'm not super good with my hands or good at like leather work or anything like that. So we're sewing. Yeah, I have no I have no skills whatsoever (laughs) that would would lend itself to that. But I feel like I would enjoy doing it, even if it ended up looking like absolute garbage. Yeah, I think you should do it. I I think you're a perfect candidate, honestly, as you become more and more advanced, uh, you know, over the next 50 to 70 years is what it sounds like it'll take. You will figure out how to do what these hand sewing craftsmen do which is as you're you're working these pieces of leather, you're pulling it and stretching it because all these leathers are like, it's leather, they're different. And even like the heat in the shop and the moisture that's coming off of their hands will affect it as they're working. Trim a millimeter here, a millimeter there, get it really, really right for each shoe. And they can do this just completely by feel after they've been doing it for a while. Then they punch holes with these crazy sharp awls and work those big needles through it from either side. Now, a lot of the hand zones that that we're going to talk about and recommend are different from some of the more mass produced ones. And like, you know, we say mass produced, everything that's made in this construction style definitely requires a human element. But one of the differences with some of these that are you know kind of pumped out a little faster is that when they cut the vamp and the plug, the dies will also pre-punch holes. That's what the stitching needles go through. But that doesn't allow you to make these adjustments on the fly, which is what really ends up getting you a better fitting and better looking shoe, more comfortable shoe too. Yeah, to me, hand zones, it's like a very, it's almost like kind of the slow cooking of shoe making. It's like the, you know, low and slow barbecue method of making shoes. And I love barbecue. So I think applying that kind of mentality to shoes is a good fit. I love that metaphor. I would say that the main difference is, at least when I'm cooking barbecue in my backyard, you know, it takes a little work to get everything set up. And then you're just kind of sitting out there and pretending like you're doing something so you don't have to do anything else. You know, you're really just sitting there looking at the smoke. And it's wonderful. I'd say the difference in the low and slow of hand zones is that like 
these people are working their asses off the whole time. And it's just very, very physical process. They've got wonderful forearms, I gotta say. If you're looking to get like really vascular forearms, this might be the hobby for you. And if you like live in Maine, because it's the only place you can really do it. I think it's important to to have a desire to do both those things. Forearms, Maine, like if that's the kind of stuff that you're into, you should get into this. And as we'll talk about as we go, this industry and the skilled people who know how to do this, it's not what it used to be. Yeah, if you're like if you're a forearm person and if you're a main person, you know, highly recommend because we're trying to keep this thing going and, and you should too. You can probably like save yourself on a gym membership, at least for forearm curls. That's the only reason that I currently have a gym membership. So it seems seems like it could be a good move for me at least. Sometimes, sometimes you'll be at the gym and there'll be that guy who's like lying on a bench that you want to use and he's just been doing forearm curls for like 40 minutes. And you can tell it's paying off, but it's still a little strange. Well, you know, he's probably got really nice calves, too, and he's trying to keep them proportional. So give him a pass. That's completely fair. Am I friends with people who are working in enough hand-sewn workshops to, like, really say this with complete confidence? No, not necessarily. But you do hear these stories that the people who do this, um, and we'll, you know, probably sometimes refer to them as guys, and the fact of the matter is that, like, there are women who do this, but largely a lot of this industry is men who are, are working on this, so... They are just like a really, really interesting bunch. Like they go home and they're musicians or they're artists and they're doing, they're painting, but they're also like welding things together to make sculpture. From all accounts, they they like to have a good time. Like they like to unwind a little bit at the end of a, a good solid forearm workout and throw down a little bit uh, and like party. Like there is just something a little more like magical and mystical and creative about the whole craft. And I love that it like very, very much encompasses who these people are. They've got a lot of great beards. I've seen some incredible beards on hand sewing guys. Well, yeah, that's interesting that, yeah, the people making them have these great beards. And then the Brooklyn hipsters who buy them have similar beards. There's like a kind of just like strange intersection of, of those beards, like a Venn diagram. That is like guys with beards, guys who buy hand sounds, and guys who make hand sounds, and then in the center, it, it, it all overlaps. I think that's how Venn diagrams work. I imagine that uh, the hand sewers, you know, themselves probably have uh, more chickens. I'd have to imagine the number of chickens owned by those two groups is probably similar. City chickens are, you know, it, it's a difficult proposition. It depends on just how much shit you want in your bathroom. Chicken shit. Well, if you have like one of those, you have like a little you know outdoor space or something i don't know you're the one you're the one who lives in brooklyn i live in jersey like everybody i know has chickens so yeah i'm, I'm still sadly personally chickenless so just kind of drafting off the situation right here and thrilled about it back to the shoes as far as soles go after the whole upper is all stitched together sometimes you'll get a machine stitched midsole that's then attached to an outsole of whatever kind certain types of soles on hand zones are then also themselves hand sewn onto the vamp um quaddy's boat mocks are a good example of that this really really soft flexible rubber sole that can kind of wrap up around and, and they stitch them together those will be generally obviously more time consuming and a little more expensive but they're pretty cool all of these things are completely resolable uh highly recommended that you're taking them or sending them back to the manufacturer in this case and you know in some instances uh, a cobbler can definitely do it especially with the hand-sewn outsoles. 
just go with the people who made it and you know send it back to the craftsman generally i think it's it's pretty recommended for any type of hand sewing just because they probably don't deal with them as much and and they just don't have these same skills necessarily yeah and in my experience most of the main hand sewing companies have really nice recrafting programs i haven't had a pair recrafted i did have a pair repaired by quaddy and they couldn't have been more helpful it was pretty quick it was very inexpensive their resoles run like under a hundred dollars to get a, a new sole on a pair so definitely uh send it back to the experts all right let's take a quick break we'll come back with some hand-sewn history and now for gen facts so jen works at standard and strange he's the guy who does most of their modeling you've probably seen his hard flex style we could say Jen's also a master of deadpan deception and has convinced everybody at Standard and Strange over the years that his ridiculous lies were true. Gen facts are a set of three statements. Two of them, vicious lies, one true. We have no idea what the true one is. So you must guess, and at the end of the episode, we'll open the envelope currently held by PricewaterhouseCoopers and reveal which one is actually true. Okay, Gen fact number one, the Goodyear Company developed a proprietary seam closure method to prevent their famous blimps from developing air leaks. It also provided a waterproof seal and was later modified to be used in footwear manufacturing, known today as the Goodyear Welt. It's pretty good gen fact. Might be true. Gen fact number two. A large amount of horsehide leather in the U.S. is a byproduct of pharmaceutical companies that harvest urine from pregnant mares, pregnant ones specifically. Mm. Great urine. I've seen some listings for that on eBay before. Gen fact number three, the tanning liquor recipe for vegetable tanned leather consists mainly of vegetables that have undergone long periods of sun exposure. Man, these are some pretty good gen facts. I feel like all vegetables have undergone a long period of sun exposure though, right? Not if they're in the shade. True. We have no idea. We wouldn't know because only Jen knows the answer to these Gen facts. And we're going to tell you with a big reveal at the end of this episode, which one is true and which two are horribly false that you completely fell for. Stay tuned for that. Back to the shoe cast. Where did this type of footwear come from? Um, while we're going to talk a lot about Russell, who's based in Wisconsin, and a lot of the production overall, probably 90-95% of total amount of hand sewns that you'll see has been outsourced to other countries, most notably the Dominican Republic, where there are a ton of skilled craftspeople who have learned the trade there. The epicenter of the U.S. hand sewn industry has always been Maine. Maine had many Native American tribes and in one way or another, that tradition was passed over to the settlers who were there. I'm actually working on a story with a stitch down writer that will really paint that picture more fully. But for now, we're going to go with the admittedly very quick, incredibly incomplete version of what's definitely a more complicated story. Again, we do not want to gloss over the fact that hand zones, while they've certainly taken different routes since then, are all essentially outgrowths of Native American footwear and ingenuity. And I think that's just really, really important to remember. We're going to pick up the history at the end of the 19th century 
predominantly along the Androscoggin River in Lewiston, Maine's second largest city that's a little less than an hour north of Portland. Portland, Maine, definitely one of the better Portlands. What what would you say is your definitive ranking of all Portlands? Oh, man, it's tough. I mean, Portland, Maine, very good Portland. Portland, Oregon, really another excellent Portland. I imagine that there are, I'm actually going to Google this. Portland's in USA. There's a Portland, Georgia. Can't say a lot about that one. Portland, Colorado. Portland, Arkansas. I I haven't been to that one either. So yeah, I think that, uh, you know, my problem with Portland's is lack of exposure. So I'm going dead tie, Maine and Oregon. Both great places. I'm going to take the Isle of Portland, which is a English Channel Island five miles south of the resort of Weymouth, forming the southernmost point of the county of Dorset, England. What do you like specifically about that Portland? I'm just reading the Wikipedia page about it. 12,400 people. Looks good. Looks like a good spot. I like a nice tight Portland. Yeah, I've never been to any of them. Yeah, I'd love to visit Portland, Maine. I would recommend Portland. Yeah, Portland, Maine. I actually am lucky enough to get up there like once or twice a year. Wonderful small city. You just walk around in your hand zones and just like eat lobster. I think I've averaged like 1.7 whole lobsters a day on the total number of trips that I've taken there. And then lobster rolls supplement them, of course. The lobster rolls are in addition to that? Wow. This sounds like a good place. I'm in. Yeah, they just give them to you for money. You have to pay money, but then they then they just give them to you. Yeah, that's like that's how restaurants work. I'm I'm familiar with that concept. It's it's very very similar to um uh, yeah other restaurants that you might have been to, but then you know they give you something other than lobster, so right. it's not as good. Right. Yeah, you, you've probably experienced something similar. Well, I thought I thought you were saying like you get off the plane and like I've never been to Hawaii either, but like on Full House or whatever <laughs> when they went there, you know they put those like late they give you a lay the like flower necklace when you get off the plane, which I assume still happens for every single person who visits Hawaii, right? I assume that you were saying in Portland, they do that, but with lobsters. Is that not true? I didn't fly there, so I don't know. I'm not like a huge lobster guy, but at my my local food store, who I, I won't name because I don't think this is a sanitary practice. When I take my kids there, they will take a lobster out of the tank and like put it on the floor and let my kids play with it. You can do this thing with a lobster where you rub it on the back of its like head and it, it will just fall asleep in like a curled up position. Curl it up so it's like sitting up on its tail and then you rub the back of its head and it like goes into a trance and it just sits there for like for as long as you want do it you to. you have to keep rubbing? No, no, you just rub it for like a little bit and then it just goes huh. out and then it's just it just sits there motionless. It's pretty cool. And for some reason, the fish department people at my local food store always enjoy taking taking a lobster out for my kids. I've never purchased a lobster there, mostly because I know that they will just put them on the floor. They just put it on the floor. And I'm like, that can't be good. It can't be good to just put a lobster on the floor before you're going to sell it to somebody. Right? Yeah, they need to like make a little lobster bed to put it on. Yeah, they should definitely do that. They, they change the sheets on every time a kid comes around. Yeah. So smooth transition. Originally in Maine... This was the definition of a cottage industry. Like people were probably actually making these things in, in cottages and they were selling them at little roadside shops. And then Maine turned into a vacation destination after World War II. And lots of kids, especially from Massachusetts and, and the rest of New England, went to summer camps up there. 
And all these travelers to Maine started buying moccasins from these little shops. And that's actually how Quaddy, one of the brands that we're going to talk about a lot, started in the 50s and the 60s. And from there, there was growth. People realized that there was a demand for these shoes. Let's start scaling this up. And at one point, there were dozens upon dozens of hand-sewn factories all throughout Maine. And then people would buy them on their way up or down and bring them home. And that's when this really started to catch on. And in a lot of ways kind of started to define part of Ivy style that then you know, kind of spread throughout certainly the Northeast. You know, that's that's like pretty cool piece of history to think that it all started with people just literally making them in, you know, their, their wonderful lobster filled cottages. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder, like, what is the, there, there's no modern equivalency of like something you'd buy at a souvenir stand that could possibly become like a, you know, style phenomenon. Like if any, it would be like if everybody started wearing those I heart New York shirts or like something like that, right? Or if everybody walked out of taking the old timey Western photos at like an amusement park or something and just kept the clothes and went home, even though it was like 92 degrees outside, they have like a a big leather jacket with all sorts of tassels on it. But then just like went to Cornell and just continued rocking it like while they're studying sociology or something, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Raid those places. They don't really keep a very close eye on you there. I've never done it. I've never. You've done never it. done it. Oh, it's great. I still, I still have one. I looked like really, really mean in it. I think I was one of the bad guys in the picture. You do have kind of a Buford Mad Dog Tannen face to you a little bit. Yeah, thank you. That means a lot. Some of his tactics were a little crude, but yeah, you know, he he was building an empire there, and that's how it goes. He's a spirited guy. You gotta give him that. So then, around the fifties and sixties, you start to see these brands emerge: Bates, Sperry, Colhan, Dexter. Quaddy, who we mentioned, Sebago. Is it Sebago or Sabago? I think it's Blucher. L.L. Bean in Freeport, Maine. G.H. Bass in Wilton, Maine. You know, so much came out of this. Sperry invented the boat shoe. Uh, Bass invented the penny loafer. And it all kind of grew from there. And Kyle Rancourt from Rancourt told me that at one point there were between 40 and 50 shoe factories in Lewiston and Auburn, Maine, which are right across that beautiful Androscoggin from each other. And there were a bunch of hand-sewn factories, but even more were making dress shoes and work boots because all these textile mills had opened up along the river. And then factories were making things from those textiles and everybody needed boots and shoes to wear and, and hand-sewns to wear, you know, probably on the weekend. You know, it's, it's a pretty cool look at like how industry used to grow somewhere and then the footwear industry would kind of move in to support it, which is, you know, very, very different from the completely decentralized way that things are. But it makes it all the cooler that all of this craft and knowledge has remained in Maine or in a lot of ways kind of come back to it. Yeah, that's a really I'm sure there's someone who is like a sociologist or something who who studies all this stuff and probably has written like a really cool book about it. Cornell, Uh, probably at Cornell. Yeah, it's really cool how you can kind of have this industry just spring up in like one specific place and then remain there for for decades and decades and decades and even after it is almost completely wiped out there's still kind of seeds of knowledge and seeds of of association with this type of footwear that that remained and never went away and is now sprouting anew so let's get to that wipeout so all these big companies come in and they buy up all the smaller shops they scale production And for a while, a lot of that was still in Maine and things were booming pretty well. 
And a lot of the people, like the families, including the Rancourt family, who used to make the Alden Cape Cod collection stuff under a different name, were doing this private label for big companies. But eventually, they all offshored almost all of the production to the Dominican and other places, and the hand-sewn industry in Maine shrunk like crazy. Now, probably the best example of this, even though it's not completely hand-sewn specific, uh, and how it all went wrong was Warren Buffett bought Dexter for $433 million worth of Berkshire Hathaway stock in 1993, which today is worth a tidy $9 billion. That's a pretty bad deal, man. I mean, I, I bought like the entire series of Dexter, like all the DVDs for like 50 bucks. And there's that one season with John Lithgow. That's like the best one. And then like, don't watch the end of it because it ends kind of weird. You like Dexter? See, I've never seen it, and neither have many other people, which is probably why this wasn't a great deal for Warren Buffett. Like, it just—I I know that there's a cult following behind it, but that show wasn't for everybody. So I think he completely misread the market. Yeah, that's pretty fair. It's a—it's uh, a little dark, little little violent, little sadistic, and also it's kind of weird because Michael C. Hall, the actor who's Dexter, at one point during the show, he mar- got married to the actress that plays his sister on the show. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to rewatch it knowing that fact. And unfortunately, all you listeners now know that fact and I've ruined it for you. Sorry. But isn't that weird? I think that's weird. Did he have to leave the country to do that? No, because it's just acting. That's how acting works. They're, they weren't really brother and sister. They were just two people working on the same show. Yeah, if you say so. So I got some great quotes from Warren Buffett. I called him up and asked him this. Um, I got these on the internet. The most gruesome deal was Dexter Shoe. When we purchased the company in 1993, it had a terrific record and in no way looked to me like a cigar butt. As a financial disaster, this one deserves a spot in the Guinness Book of World Records. I gave away 1.6% of a wonderful business to buy a worthless business. Dexter is the worst deal that I've made. Warren Buffett continues in a letter to Dexter shareholders and the people who work there. Our once prosperous Dexter operation folded, putting 1,600 employees in a small main town out of work. Many were past the point in life at which they could afford to learn another trade. We lost our entire investment, which we could afford, but many workers lost a livelihood that they could not replace, which I absolutely love because unlike basically everybody else in the world out there wearing tassel loafers, Warren Buffett actually cares or at least creates the impression that he cares about people. Bless you, Warren Buffett. You know, we got a little curious to see what kind of shoes Warren Buffett is wearing And there's not that many pictures on the internet of Warren Buffett's shoes, unfortunately. But the few that we found, he's wearing loafers almost exclusively, full strap loafers. It's really tough to make out exactly what they are and who makes them. But there's one picture where it's just the bottom of his loafers and you can see the strap. I mean, these things are shot. They're literally coming apart, the sole and the welt. Dude knows how to wear some shoes hard. Give him credit for that. But yeah, I mean, can you have you ever, have you figured out what these things are? Do you have any idea? I mean, it looks like he's had them resold already. Looking at this photo, which you can if you Google Warren Buffett shoes, it's like the third result on Shutterstock. It looks like he's had them resold. They might have been like Ferragamos or something. But you'd have to think like he owned Dexter. Like maybe he has an old pair and he is just regrets. I could see it being this like whole kind of thing for him where he like every day he like just sadly looks at these Dexter shoes and he thinks about the $9 billion that he that he kind of pissed away on that deal. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to wear these shoes every day and just remember to not buy cigar butt companies. 
apparently, as he said. Right. Like, this is what drives him to be great. Yeah. 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 That's a good idea. Have like a motivational shoe that you wear every day that reminds you of your biggest mistake. Yeah. I have to buy more shoe companies that desperately fail and then continue to wear their shoes. And then I'm going to hit it big. I'm looking forward to it. I think that's like a reasonable path for you. I think you can do that. If you become like a Warren Buffett figure later on, this will be the moment where it began. You need the origin story. Of course. And smooth segue, the origin story of kind of the new wave of hand-sewn operations up in Maine started in the late 90s. So there's a couple companies that are very prominent today. God bless them. One of them is Quaddy. Quaddy kind of restarted, and we'll get into that a lot more next episode because the story is really interesting. But they start back up. Uh, they start selling at local craft fairs in the late 90s. And these Japanese guys buy them from the fairs or somehow otherwise catch wind of what's going on. People are showing up asking for Quaddy moccasins. That put them on this path to scaling up their operation and then eventually opening back up to a much larger market of American customers. Yeah, that's a, a, a really cool story. And yeah, the Japanese are have a you know big interest in in Ivy League style from from the fifties and sixties, from kind of the heyday when, you know, when people were, were wearing hand zones, penny loafers, that kind of stuff. I don't know about you. I'm I'm not a big I'm not a big Ivy League guy. When I was in high school, I of course, you know, had a big kind of like anti-establishment streak to me. But I did love college basketball. So I went to a Princeton, I think it was like Princeton versus maybe Cornell or something. I don't know who they were playing in basketball, but they had all these great t-shirts for sale at the arena. And I, I purchased one and the one I wanted to buy, but my, I was with my friend, my friend and his dad and his dad wouldn't let me buy it. Was it said duck Fartmouth? It's great on so many layers. <laughs> just a brilliant t-shirt. The one I ended up getting, it just you said... You do that with pretty much anything, but like the fart myth part works out that, just so beautifully. It just is... I'm, whoever thought of that, you're like, yeah, that's why you got into an Ivy League school. Like, I get it now. I get your brilliance. But the one I ended up buying, it just said in big letters, like big uh, Princeton orange colored letters, it just said, Harvard sucks. And I just <laughs> would wear that all the time to, uh, to high school. And I just felt like such a... Uh, you know, like I'm really sticking to all these upper middle class kids in my high school who are like working actually really hard to get into a good school while I don't do that. So good times, good times. But got to respect the funny T-shirts of the Ivy Leagues. I got to give them that. And the good loafers. So good job, guys. Yeah, they got it all. So, I, yeah, I went to school at Wisconsin and um, Michigan was, you know, quote unquote, our rival and especially football at that point, even though they just trounced us constantly that's changed luckily yeah there was definitely a muck fishigan t-shirt and then which is you know doesn't sound nearly as good still pretty good it's not bad but and then there was another one um which i i owned and like i mean i don't even know if you can say this on a podcast these days but i'm just gonna say it but it said ann arbor is a whore and then it was calvin pissing on a map of michigan and the little star was on ann arbor and that was that was a hot seller let me tell you that's really interesting because I, I think I maybe have seen that T-shirt, but I just thought it was Calvin uh, pissing on a mitten and I didn't really understand it. <laughs> it could have been that. And they just repurposed it because it's, I mean, it's such a perfect little mitten. So yeah. then, you know, this revival continues. Rancourt, Quaddy, Main Mountain Moccasin, Yucatan, 
which actually started in, in Goodyear Welt footwear before really making its name with these often absolutely wild, completely beautiful hand zones, all start to arise kind of all around the same time. And then, of course, Russell, who we mentioned, uh, and they've largely been making hand-sewn boots and shoes for for hunters and other sportsmen for 120 years. But all of a sudden, there's this rush back into the market. People are really interested in it. Things that are American-made, that level of quality, but just that they're they're made here. They're supporting American jobs. This industry really starts to reboom when it seemed like it was kind of done for in the states, which is just it's so cool. This is a really fun fact. Despite Russell operating out of Berlin, Wisconsin, I love this fact from Kyle Rancourt that reflects the mainness of it all. Basically, all hand sewing thread is made in Lewiston, and there's one company in the world that makes it. The hand sewing thread is these polyester fibers that are spun, and then they taper at the end of it so you can fit it through the hole. And they patented it, and they actually call it cord, not thread, because it's just so damn heavy. A lot of times these hand sewers use beeswax to keep the threads together, especially when their hands start to sweat. Like everything about like this story, this one company making this thread that everybody uses right in Maine, never gave up. Like it's just like I, I love it. The the passion that people who love great shoes have for the shoes and for the industries. Like I think that, you know, this whole story of, of Maine and hand sewns and, and this one thread all put together, like it it really is perfect and it makes it something that you just want to support to no end. Yeah, absolutely, man. I think it is, it's so cool to have seen this whole, you know, this whole history, this whole industry pops up a little bit out of nowhere, gets decimated by corporate raiders in the eighties in Gordon Gecko suits with American psycho business cards and stuff. And then it all just dies and gets offshored and it's, you know, it's basically dead. And then from the ashes rises up almost like a more pure and, you know, more beautiful version of, of what had been there in the beginning. I just think it's awesome. I love how much, you know, the people that work in this industry in Maine and, you know, I assume, assume at, in, at Russell too, are just have this passion for, for making this very specific product and doing it at such a high quality and not compromising on, on materials and or the thread or doing it slow the way it's supposed to be done to do it properly and to to make products that really will resonate with people who order them. Yeah, it's just, it's really cool. And it's something that I find really special. My first pair of like nicer shoes that I purchased were a pair of Quaddy boat shoes uh, in like 2011 or something like that. I just heard this story of, yeah, it's, you know, these are just being made by hand in in Maine by, you know, some gruff looking guy wearing a Red Sox hat. And I was like, I'm in. You know, I just immediately was in on that whole idea. It just seemed to to really resonate with me to have shoes that were being being made by hand like that. I've basically owned at least one pair of hand sewns ever since, and I, I I just wear them all the time. I find them so comfortable. You'll see, like recently, I've been posting a lot of pictures on Instagram where it's just me holding boots or something. Uh, there's quaddies on my feet because it's too hot to like wear wear boots and stuff. <laughs> They're so comfortable. I just I wear them all summer long. I've had a lot of boot hold. But prominent shots recently. I was I was wondering if you were just barefoot. No, I've got quaddies on, and also I just think it's funny to make people have to look at my butt in the in the post. So I've I guess I have a weird sense of humor. But there's nothing funnier than butts to this day. Agreed. Agreed. What could be funnier than that? Nothing. That's the whole point. And before we get out of here, Ticho, remember those gen facts from earlier this episode? Oh yeah. Do you know what the right answer was? Well, I have the envelope right here. 
It was just handed to me by a, a man in the suit. I've got, oh, wow. Okay. All right. So now I know what it is, and you've got to guess, along with the listeners. So we've got Genfact 1, Goodyear Welt, Blimps, etc. Genfact 2, Horse Urine. Genfact 3, Vegetables Acting Like Snooky, who's still very relevant. What do you think? Great reference. I mean, you know we love Snooky here in New Jersey. Uh, she's a, a state treasure. I, I, I'm leaning towards like a rule number one out because I, I know about the history of the Goodyear Welt. And I know that Charles Goodyear Jr. Uh, is a tall snake who didn't really invent it. So honestly, if you told me blimps were invented in the 1600s, I would believe you. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming they were around. Number two, I thought most horse leather comes from as a byproduct of like the horse meat industry. You just got French people eating horse burgers, and that's giving us our beautiful shoes. Number three, yeah, I mean, what what is in that liquor? Is it it is some kind of vegetable matter? I'd have to imagine that whatever it it uses, that you know, the sun would maybe help develop those tannins in some way. I'm gonna go with number three as being true. Gen fact number three is a lie. No. Gen fact number one is a lie. Gen fact number two, a large amount of horsehide leather in the U.S. is a byproduct of pharmaceutical companies that harvest urine from pregnant mares for I don't know what, but Jen certainly does. And maybe we'll ask him, man, Jen's good. He stumped you. Shout out to Standard and Strange for sponsoring the episode and for Jen for just having facts. Love him. Yeah, I think Jen has some pretty strange Google searches on his computer, and uh, I can't wait to see what other facts he throws our way. Love the guys at Standard and Strange. Just one of the best stores in the game. Love them. They may or may not still have some of that big Byberg reverse chamois drop. Uh, I may or may not have uh, a pair on my feet soon. I don't know. We'll see. Mm, exciting. All right. But that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with even more hand zones, getting into some of the brands that we love. Follow us wherever you get your podcast. Leave a review. Follow Ticho at Ticho Blanco, T-I-C-H-O Blanco Shoes. Shoes. Uh, and at Stitchdown. See you next week. Take care of your shoes. Mm-hmm.